the commitment to expository preaching through whole chapters of the Bible is really a protection for us, I think. I don't like my chances of being faithful if I just got to choose what to say. But if I'm tied closely to what Amos wants to say, I end up saying all sorts of alarming things that I would never have had the boldness to say otherwise. How do you preach a sermon which warns of God's judgments in a clear and effective way? On this week's episode of the Bible Matters podcast, we spoke to Reverend Dr. Andrew Satch. Andrew serves as senior pastor at Grace Church Greenwich in London, as well as working as a tutor on the Cornhill training course. Andrew is the author of numerous books, including Pierced for Our Transgressions, the Dig Deeper series, and most recently, Are You 100% Sure That You Want to Be Agnostic? Andrew recently preached through the book of Amos to his congregation, and today we sat down with him to ask him about how he came to study the book as well as teach it. We're going to be focusing particularly on the first talk he did in this series on Amos chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 3 verse 8, which was released prior to this episode on the Bible Matters podcast just a couple of days ago. My name's Tiff Stromso. And my name's Leo Elborn, and this is the Bible Matters podcast, encouraging faithful Bible teaching and ministry. Andrew Satch, welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Andrew, what do we miss if we don't preach about God's judgment? Oh, there's all sorts of ways I could answer this question, but you miss half the Bible, don't you? I mean, one of the good things about being committed to teaching the whole counsel of God and thinking over our preaching program, we want to cover everything God says is, you know, you do a book like Amos and Amos is nine tenths or nine and a half tenths judgment. And so you're either going to say, well, I'm going to, st- I'm going to preach a very selective canon of all the nice things Jesus said without the things he said next. Or if you teach the whole Bible, then God wants to talk about judgment quite a lot and maybe more than we're comfortable with. And so a bit like Amos, you're just forced to talk about it. Um, but you could also answer, what do we miss? We miss a, a loving warning of a God he wants us to know. I mean, if there is a judgment, it's not kind to not speak about it before it arrives. Mm-hmm. Andrew, we're going to be talking primarily today about the book of Amos and a series you preached on Amos about a year ago. Can you just tell us, even before that, what got you first interested in this book of Amos? Well, I, it's, for me, it's a bit unusual because I have two jobs. I, I work at Grace Church Greenwich as one of the pastors, but I'm also a tutor at the Cornhill training course. And we do Amos as one of our set texts at Cornhill, and I taught it in seminars every year for four years, I think, or five years. And then I thought, oh, I'll preach this now. Now, obviously, most people, you don't teach in a course as well. But I think that just that idea of being able to preach something that for whatever reason is the book of the Bible, you've been in a lot yourself. So I, I really enjoyed the fact that I just knew where the whole series was going before I preached sermon number one. And um, I think I've done the same with the book of Revelation because I um, we did it in one context and then in another. And I think I'd really recommend to preachers if you can work at something, I don't know, say you do small groups in it one year and then you preach it two years later or you do it in a one-to-one Bible study and then you do it the next year. So yeah, I had that, I had four or five years worth of not just my insights, but the insights of students I've been studying with. And I thought, brilliant, I will now grab all of their best insights and, and I'll preach it myself. Was there a reason why you chose to do it now, not in another 
four years? Well, just when we when we choose the preaching at church, we're trying to get a balance between different parts of the Bible. So generally, we switch genres every term. So if we've done gospel, then we'll do Old Testament. And if we've done narrative, then we'll do prophecy and, and so on. And so it was kind of time for Old Testament prophecy and I was ready to go. And Andrew, you would have come to this series having done a lot of thinking at Cornhill and other places with students. How did your understanding of the book change as you got ready to preach it at church? Uh, I think with all books of the Bible, I find they just get easier the more you know them. And you also love them more the more you know them. I know that it kind of should be like that, but there's certainly books I'm a bit scared of. You know, if you said, Andrew, next week you have to preach Zechariah, I'd be like, oh goodness. But I think I did probably feel the same about Amos and I certainly felt the same about the Revelation. But just the more you know it, it kind of gets clearer. But also you realise, wow, this is a message we need to hear. And I'm so in that sense, just familiarity makes it more enjoyable. But also there are some decisions you have to make when you preach it that you don't have to make if you just lead a <laughs> seminar on it. So I found yeah, it was crunch time for working out what am I actually going to say or how will I actually divide it? Yeah, rather you've got than to actually make decisions and exactly. teach. That's an amazing build up. Can you tell us about the book? <laughs> what have you learned in your 10 years studying it or whatever it is? Um, oh gosh, so many things. I mean, it's a, it's a very exciting book and a pretty terrifying book. I mean, it's nine chapters, eight and a half chapters of judgment. And then there's a happy ending at the very, very, very end. You can't even say chapter nine is a happy ending because half of chapter nine isn't very happy. <laughs> but the end of chapter nine is happy. And I was having to say to people in church, you know, there is a happy ending coming. Please stick <laughs> with this because it's quite heavy. But it's it's also like really, really pertinent, I think, to our context. And I can talk a little bit about the situation in Amos, but it really does match, I think, a lot of the the UK church or the, the Western church in um right now. Amos is a shepherd who also has a part-time job dressing fickamore trees. <laughs> so he's, uh, he's got two different uh, jobs as a farmer. Um, and he's from the south, from Judah, which at this time in history is less prosperous than Israel in the north. So the kingdom split and up north is doing really well economically, but doing terribly spiritually. And so this guy from the south where, you know, he's the farmer peasant guy, from the less chic backwater of Judah shows up in Israel saying, you've got to repent. And they say, who are you? You know, go back. There's a, there's a scene in chapter seven where he meets Amaziah. who's the priest of Bethel. Bethel is the, the shrine in the North that King Jeroboam the first set up with golden calves to worship. And, you know, they've got their whole religious thing going in the North, which they made up. And um, Amos is from down south and he shows up saying, you've got to come back in line with the Lord and repent. And they say, go back home, mate. We don't want you up here. We don't need your kind of preaching here. And I think particularly their prosperity in the north makes them think, we don't need to hear from you. You know, what, what do we have to gain from you? And I, I just think it's so resonant, actually, of the way that some of the leaders of the Church of England or some of the Anglican Church are so arrogant towards um, people from other parts of the world Ah. which are economically behind us, but actually spiritually much more faithful. And we say, what have we got to learn from you? Look, we're, we're in the West, we're in London. Look at look at how prosperous we are here. No thanks, go back home. And there's this, he's got the true thing to say, but he's not the culturally impressive, you know, I'm from the economic centre. Mm. You're beginning to draw parallels between Amos then and us today. 
it's an interesting genre, this prophecy. Um, are there any things to particularly be aware of when studying a minor prophet? I think the minor prophets are so different from each other, aren't they? So, you know, you've got all the way from Amos, which is before the exile to Assyria, um, all the way through to Haggai, which is after the return from the exile to Babylon. So some prophets are in the north, some are in the south, some are before the exile, some are after the exile. Um, some are um, narrative like Jonah, which is all stuff that happens to him mainly with a prayer in the middle, whereas this is mainly Amos speaking with one exception. So I think they're very, very different and they get collected together in the Jewish canon as the Book of the Twelve, and they all come together at the end of the final part of the Hebrew Bible. But they were collected, I think, late, later. So mm-hmm. at the time they're writing, they're actually, they've all got their own setting. So um, there's some sort of connections between them. So I think the fact that Amos is put next to Joel in the canon is because there's some links. There's one verse that's kind of the same in both books, and they both have locusts in them. And you, you know you can see, and Obadiah and Jonah go together because they're both about Nineveh, and so they're sort of collected. Mm-hmm. But on on the whole, I think it stands as its own book. You're suggesting there's some kind of structure to those minor prophets, maybe. Yeah, I think the the way the canon's put together often has something extra to say, doesn't it? So it's like the same with the Psalms. You know, the Psalms are in the sense individually written in different situations, but then they're compiled into the Psalter with its five books. And some of the ways in which they're arranged in the Psalter is important. So, yeah, probably there's some useful things you could do about what is Amos doing here in the Book of the Twelve, although I didn't do that much of that, to be honest. Hmm. Just talk to us, I guess, sticking within the book, as you've studied it over the years, what are the key themes that come up in this book? You've talked about judgment. You've talked about this lousy prophet from the South. Uh, what else is kind of going on in this book? I think there's two things that are wrong in the book. There's spiritual things and then there's social things. Uh, spiritually, the things that are wrong is Bethel. And you need to know about Bethel that this is the... Obviously, in, in the book of Genesis, Bethel is great because it's where God appeared to Jacob and made their promises. But by this stage, Bethel is bad because it's where Jeroboam I erected the golden calf. So every time we see Bethel, think idolatry. And you see the priests of Bethel, think fake priest. He's not a Levite. And it's... It's not like another religion altogether. It's not like they said, let's stop worshipping God and we'll worship Baal, as they do you know, sometimes in history. It's like, let's worship God, but in our own way. And that's, I think, what makes it so pertinent to us, because it's a kind of pseudo-Christianity. And it has some of the same things, but then they just adjust all the things they don't like. It's interesting, so, isn't it, how many times you hear that, you know, oh, you think of God like this, but I think of God's as with 10 arms or whatever it is. That is the kind of rhetoric of London religion, isn't it? Yeah, and, and of the church now, you know, the whole discussion of, oh, let's see what, what we think God is like now, or let's see if God is speaking with a different voice now. Like, of course he's not speaking with a different voice. God doesn't change. But to, to hear some of the leaders of the Western church, you'd think that we were free to update. Yeah, so it's, it's really, really contemporary. And actually, even as I was midway through the series... You know, our bishop in the south of London tweeted saying, um, well, basically, we, I, I'm supporting revising what Christians think about marriage. Um, like in the middle of the series, here's a voice saying, I don't think we need to stick with the Bible anymore. So it's just, it's so contemporary. Um, so anyway, the, yeah, the spiritual things that are wrong, but there's also social things that are wrong. And this is probably what Amos is maybe most famous for in the church, that he's the campaigner for social justice. And he says, look how you trample on the poor. 
uh, look at how the vulnerable are exploited in your midst. But I think the key thing is to see that the two go together. So it's because they break the first commandment and they don't love God with all their soul, mind um, and strength that they then break the second and they don't love their neighbour. But the social ones are more visible, I think. So, you know, everyone in the UK is scandalised by when they find that there's been abuse in the church. I mean, rightly, we should be scandalised by it. But that's kind of very visible. Not everyone notices when there's theological drift in the church because you have to be more sort of biblically informed to know that. And I think in Amos, he's saying, look, the social ills are the visible display of what's wrong which at heart is a spiritual ill, but that they go together. That's very interesting. So I guess in that respect, if you read Amos and you're really convicted by social issues, but you don't care about neglecting the first commandment, you should have no other gods, then you've not quite got what Amos is saying. Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, absolutely. So like, you know, for example, in chapter, in chapter one, sorry, chapter two, he's giving an indictment against Israel and he says... Um, for example, um, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. They sell the righteous for silver. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor. So this is all the social ills. And then a man and his father go into the same girl. So this is sexual deviancy. Um, and then he, within, you know, later in the same, same oracle, uh, you commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. Other than you don't want to hear God's word. And they just go together. You know, you're, you're abusing the poor, you're sexually immoral, and you won't listen to God's word. And I think, yeah, to take one without the others is to misunderstand it. So the fact that Amos is sort of the, the hero prophet for the social justice warriors, he may or may not care about God's word, is kind of ironic because Amos really cares about both. Andrew, can you tell us, in a nutshell, what is Amos about? Where are we headed? Well, I mean, it just begins with the best ever cliffhanger in verse 1. So the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah, the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. <laughs> <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And it's, I mean, it's amazing. Cut to the title. Amos. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the whole book, we're sort of waiting. When, when is this earthquake going to come? And it, it does come, spoiler alert. But you have to wait right to the end. And it's saying judgment's on its way and it's not quite arrived. And this is a word of warning before it. And really the whole book is God's sustained plea to the people saying, turn back. There's this wonderful chapter in chapter five where he three times says, seek and live, seek me and live, seek the Lord and live, seek good, not evil, and you will live, comes three times in chapter five. So it's this call to repent and to change tack. And the tragedy of the book is that they, they don't for the most part. I mean, I guess there's a remnant who do, but most of them say, no thanks. And as I say, Amaziah speaks for all of them when he says, Amos, shut up, go, go back home. We don't want you up here. Andrew, you started this series choosing to look at three chapters <laughs> in your very first talk. That's a big chunk. That's a third of the book in your first talk. Why oh, wow. did you decide to do that? <laughs> uh, I mean, it is a long section. And you know, I didn't think we even read the whole thing. And we did have quite a good read, quite a long reading. Um, it's, I think it's basically because that is the length of Amos's first sermon. I mean, that's the first section 
And it's pretty obvious, actually, if you look at it, that there's this section, sort of characteristic of the section is for three transgressions of X and for four. Um, and it goes all the way through into chapter two, verse six, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And then I was going to finish at the end of verse 16 of chapter two. Mm. But then I realized there's a kind of bracket with the lion roaring right at the beginning of chapter one. And then the lion roars again in chapter three, verse eight. And I thought, oh, that is the section. So it's really just me trying to go with Amos's section. And I thought, okay, this is bracketed by the two roars of the lion. And it's actually, as I, as I said in the sermon, it's, it's the lion prowling. So you, you watch this lion visiting each of the mm, countries mm. in a big circle until finally, right in the bullseye, is Israel herself. So you couldn't cover everything in 30 minutes. How did you begin to choose what to leave out, what to keep in, what to focus on? I mean, I hate leaving things out. <laughs> and so on the whole, in, in Grace Church, we try to take quite small sections just so you have more chance to say everything. It's either, you know... <laughs> that went really well. <laughs> it's either very long sermons, which this was, or very short sections. Um, actually, this, I did cheat slightly. So even though I took chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 8 for the first sermon, I then overlapped it. And in the second sermon, I go right back to chapter 2, verse 6, because I just wasn't able to cover everything that I needed sure. to there. And that, I think that way you can have your cake and eat it, because I wanted to see how the whole thing worked as a whole. Mm. But also I, I thought there's too much here for one sermon. And I do that a few times where I don't just take consecutive sections. I sometimes think, oh, well, I haven't got space for that this week, but next week there's a little bit less to say and I can backtrack. I guess that's also really helpful for your listeners to almost do a bit of revision mm. and see how it's linking up and being one book, how the flow of the argument is continuing. Yeah, and you can get the flow of the argument in one sermon and then the detail in the second sermon. So, you know, the flow of the argument in chapter one is God's judgment against all of these other nations and then, surprise, also against you. Wow, because we were just enjoying God being angry with our enemies and now it turns out that um, we hadn't noticed the the plank in our own eye. That's the first sermon. But then the second sermon was, that, well, let's see exactly what God is angry about Israel for. And that, yeah, there's a whole sermon in that, really. So we went back to chapter two. Can we just talk about what you've just said? So about chapter one, because your talk, I think, had something I have never heard before in a sermon in that it had a plot twist. You were saying, as you've already said, chapter one, it is these pronouncements of judgment on seven nations and Israel. They're there and they're cheering God on as he judges their enemies and then all of a sudden there's this huge twist after the seven are judged. Actually, the Lord's judgment falls on Israel. And you really wanted to reflect that in your talk. Yeah. So you didn't give any indication that this final judgment was coming. Even on the handouts in the talk, you said you were particularly elusive. Why did you choose to preach it like that? Oh, I think just because that's what Amos does. So... David Helm from the Simeon Trust in the US um, has a really helpful definition of expository preaching where he says expository preaching is saying what the Bible says. Okay, fair enough. That's, that's obvious. But for the purpose for which it says it, in other words, you're trying to get the application from the text as well as the content. But then the last thing he adds, and I think this was newer to me, he says what the Bible says for the purpose for which it says it in the way that it says it. And what he's trying to capture is... The words of the Bible are the best way of getting across this point for this purpose. So um, my, my summary of this method is 
expository preaching is at its heart radical plagiarism. <laughs> like you just copy everything from the, from the Bible. So they copy the structure from the Bible, copy the... And in this case, copy the brilliant twist from the Bible because it's it, there's this drama where I think Amos really does fool them. It's a little bit like somebody described it as the the Nathan the prophet factor. You know, when... Nathan confronts David about his adultery, but starts off talking about a man he's stolen a a little sheep. Hmm. And and David says, oh, that's terrible what he did to that sheep. And you're like, "Mm, hmm, okay. And then he finally, and it's exactly the same strategy, I think, where Amos fools them by they think he's talking about something else and then there's a twist. And I thought this is just brilliant because it, it works on you rhetorically and I thought, I want to copy that. So I'm not just getting the content from the book. I'm even getting the strategy of how to get the content across from the book. And just in terms of how you actually did that, just the kind of nuts and bolts of the sermon, how did you deliver it in this way, which you think reflected the passage? Well, I was a bit cheeky. I basically pretended that the sermon was about something else until the last, <laughs> the, the last five minutes or something. But I think that's what that is. Again, that is what Amos does. But I just leaned into that. So... I, I thought this this only works if we're cheering on God's judgment against enemies. You said, like, you're hopefully nodding along, going, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah get the enemy. And I definitely was. You I me. wanted us to feel the way I think Amos's hearers would have felt and then us to be as shocked as I think Amos' hearers would be shocked. That was my aim. You're a little bit scuppered if someone takes a phone call five minutes before the end of the sermon <laughs> or has to run to the bathroom or something. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's always true, isn't it? Like if someone comes to the, they come to the first seven sermons of Amos and then they have to go away. They, don't, they, they never get the happy ending, which you really have to wait for. Yeah. Just on this quickly before we move on, the pun you used on your handout, <laughs> yes. I particularly enjoyed. I really enjoyed it because it meant the people looking at the handout before you gave the talk didn't quite know where you were going. What was the pun? The central plank in the argument which was a reference to Jesus talking about specks and planks. And that's the thing I loved. You actually took us to Jesus's words. And mm. it was 100% true that I think what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount there is exactly what Amos is talking about here, that Israel have a plank in their own eye. Mm. Can you talk us through how you got there, how you got to that decision, why you decided to go there? Well, handouts can totally kill suspense, can't they? Because if, if the whole point is as a twist, I mean, imagine if you had a handout for your Netflix series <laughs> and you could just look down that it said 0.7 and then it tells you the, the punchline. I mean, that, that really kills it. So I just didn't want my handout to do yeah. that. So I actually, we only read the first part of the reading, so I didn't want people to get ahead. We put a question mark um, where the reading ends and I chose an obscure final point. Yeah, just because I want the reveal to come when it comes in the text. And so, yeah, that's the disadvantage of, I mean, e- even with readings, I'd sometimes do the same. So I, I recently, I was teaching 1 Kings 22 with um, Micaiah and King Ahab. And there's, there's a kind of suspense because shall I go to Ramoth Gilead or not is the big question of the chapter. And then there's all these different opinions and he's trying to suppress what he knows to be true. But whether or not he goes to Ramoth Gilead, that is the surprise reveal at the end. So it seems a shame even to read that far. So we just stopped the reading short, then we did the sermon, and then as the final bit of the sermon, I did the reveal. It just shows it's not just about the talk, the words you write down to give in your talk, but even thinking through things like, what do you put on the handout? Mm. Do you put the full reading down? Mm. Things like that. They 
they are part of the talk and are worth time and consideration. Mm, definitely. Andrew, what aspects of God's judgment were you particularly trying to draw out? I think in this first talk, I think, I mean, the whole thing is about God's judgment almost. So, you know, you've got nine chapters of it. And that actually made me think, because I realised I mustn't repeat myself too much. Some repetition's okay, because Amos is repeating himself so that you get a cumulative effect. That's fair enough. But you don't want to say exactly the same things each time. So sometimes I had to hold back thinking, no, no, but sermon three is where that really comes to the fore. So otherwise, you know, that's one of the reasons you need to plan the whole series. Otherwise you use up all of your key illustrations in, the, in sermon one. They're like, oh, bother, I needed that for... <laughs> You know, it was a really, it's a really hard lesson to learn. I think when you're starting out, isn't it? Doing one talk, you know, it's it's tricky, but it's kind of okay. It's when you have to do a whole series and you realise, okay, I can't put all my good points into one. <laughs> but it is actually the blessing of if you are preaching the whole thing. And I think in a lot of churches, people share series. You know, I'll, I'll do the first sermon, you do the second one, etc. That's much, much harder. I think because because it was my own series. I'm not the only preacher at our church, but. I had Amos as my series. It just meant that I could make decisions about, I don't need to say that this week because I know that I can say it in two weeks time, that those sorts of things. Whereas if somebody else was preaching in two weeks time, I don't know if I trust them to say it. So I might want to say everything. So yes, sharing things out. But in, in this first sermon, I think I didn't actually talk much about the detail of God's judgment, except for the imagery of God can't overlook sin for three transgressions before I will not revoke the fact that the judgment is by fire, which he says seven times. The fact that he's particularly got his eye on the leaders, the kings, the princes, the one who holds the scepter. Those are sort of the things that are coming out. But then I guess the main idea of the first talk is don't fail to notice your own sin when you cheer on God's judgment at somebody else. And that was really the main idea for the first talk. I really enjoyed how you repeated God notices a lot. Hmm. Um, so yes, as you've just said, Amos's hearers, readers, listen up, God is noticing, but also you need to notice your own guiltiness hmm. and God is seeing that too. I thought you repeated that often in a really, yeah, a helpful way. Just on, on repetition, I was, I re-listened to the talk in preparation for this podcast yesterday just think what did I actually say <laughs> and can I defend this on, on on audio but I noticed that I had repeated quite a lot of the phrases and I think I would do the same thing again because it's kind of part of the rhythm of the chapter so there's lots of phrases that come up again for three transgressions and for four I will send a fire I will send a fire and I think when I did it I read every I will send a fire and I could just say you know, you, I can imagine a sermon where you go and God sends fire seven times. And I suggest that is not as good as saying seven, seven times, I'll send a fire because that's what the text does. And it, there's a sort of rhythm of the words by which the thing gets across by this sort of cascade of, of judgments, one or the other. And Amos clearly thought that his readers needed to hear it seven times over. Yeah. Why do we not need to hear it seven times? You did just read quite a bit of the passage i mean obviously it's a very long passage so relatively not that much but actually i i just noticed when you got to israel you really just read it and um you really just emphasized it and i was sat there listening thinking oh crumbs I, and again i think that is the conviction about expository preaching isn't it that these words are better than my words and the point of my words is just to showcase and to convey Amos's words. 
So I, you know, if you have a talk where you're sort of floating above the text and giving your own illustrations, I think, well, that's such a shame because what about Amos's illustrations? I prefer to hear those. If I had a choice between a story of mine and a story of Amos's, I'd always want his one. So I, I, I don't make any apology for the fact that I want as many of his words as possible in my talk because he just puts it better than me, you know, because... I wrote my talk by working hard at it, but he wrote his talk by the Holy Spirit inspiring him directly. So, you know. Checkmate. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, can you pin down for us why you think Amos's readers needed to hear this? Um, complacency and the fact that their prosperity as a nation blinded them to their spiritual state. And I think that is so similar to London, you know, where we are, or the West in general. And there's, there's religious rot, but they don't notice it because things are going okay. And they are going to go into exile eventually, but just not yet. It's, it's a generational way. And so they think, oh, it's all fine. And I think complacency is where we're at as well. Andrew, just kind of stepping back a little bit, once you'd done the talk, do you remember any of the feedback you got on it? How was it received by your congregation? I don't remember for this particular talk, but I, I think... One of the things is a church gets used to hearing exposition. And, you know, we've got lots of people, all sorts of people at our church, and there's a mixture, and some people are very new to Christian things, and some people are unbelievers. And So I'm not saying, oh, everyone there is a sort of super mature Christian. It's a whole mixture. But we do have the habit of we're going to go through whole books of the Bible and listen to what it says. and So, so I think that really helps me because I think if, if I imagine I go in this in a church that's used to a five-minute topical sermon and I give them a 25, 30-minute heavy judgment and they're going to be like, what? But <laughs> at, at Grace Church, that's kind of normal and people just roll with that. And sometimes we say at the beginning, I can't remember if I did for this talk, but we sometimes say our practice at this church is to go through whole books of the Bible and we just take the next chapter and that's, in a way, it's almost a defense of what you're about to do. So I know there's some really hard things in this chapter, but I didn't choose them especially because I wanted to tell you the hardest things in the Bible. I just chose them because I wanted to say everything in the Bible and this is next. So I think that just really helps and people are expecting it. And I do remember somebody saying after about, we did it in two blocks because I thought eight weeks of judgment is probably more than anyone can handle. <laughs> so we did four weeks and then something else. And then we came back to it and did the other four weeks. I remember someone saying, how, how long is this series? Oh, wow. <laughs> and I That's think, what you want to hear, isn't it? <laughs> I, well, I, th I think they meant this is hard work. And I, I felt the same. You know, this is, this is tough. And judgment, really? Seven, seven sermons on judgment and then one sermon on hope? But again, you just have to trust God. That's what Amos does. Yeah. So That's what he's given us. Yeah, exactly. Andrew, I'd love to think just for a few moments about this central theme of Amos chapters 1 to 3 of God's judgments. I think one of the things I thought as I heard the talk and as I was reflecting on it is uh, if I was preaching it as a really, you know, rookie novice preacher, I think my instinct would have been to preach something like, here's God's judgment. It's really terrible, but we as Christians don't have to face that because we're saved by the blood of Jesus. That was very much not what you said. 
you kind of encouraged us to think very seriously about judgment. Can you just talk us through your decision to preach like that? Yeah, I mean, I hope I'm not denying that. I, I, I absolutely affirm what you just said about Jesus. It saves us and is our hope. I think, however, I want to leave sometimes the sharp edges on a sermon. I think if, if you make everything okay at the end of the sermon, you sort of cancel out all of the challenge. And I just think the Bible often doesn't do that. I mean, even Jesus doesn't do that. You know, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, um, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a man who built his house on the rock. And, and then the other man builds his house on the sand and the house fell with a great crash. <laughs> you know, that's the end of the sermon. Yeah. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry, it's all okay because you can trust me. Or, or the, the, the day of Pentecost, you know, Peter doesn't even put forgiveness in the sermon. He leaves it to the Q&A. He, the punchline is God has made him who you crucified both Lord and Christ. In other words, Jesus is now the king and you killed him and you're really in trouble. And any questions? Wow. And they're like, what can we do to be saved? So obviously you want to be, be ready to tell people what they have to be saved, but to do to be saved. But I think to leave the harsh edges on is just what the Bible does often. Now, I don't mean you don't often, often, often say that there's forgiveness in Jesus. And in fact, because this is a sermon as part of a church service and every week in a church service, we have a confession. And every time after the confession, we hear the assurance of forgiveness for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And then we always have Christian songs and the Christian songs are always about the Lord Jesus and the gospel. And so even then this sermon isn't self-contained. It's within a you know bigger context where you hear about Jesus, but I don't feel the need to make everything okay by the end of the sermon. Unfortunately, on the Bible Matters podcast, the sermon will be contained. Yes, true. With this, so go this. and listen to a lovely song afterwards <laughs> about the, the forgiveness that is in the Lord Jesus. Yeah, put an episode of confession as well, <laughs> yeah. perhaps. Yeah. Are there any times that you yourself or you've heard others make mistakes when it comes to preaching on ju- God's judgment? Oh, I mean, yeah, we can get this wrong. I mean, I guess two obvious ways is we can shy away from saying it. And I think that's a common one where you just miss out the things that are hard in the Bible. But the other one is you just enjoy it a bit too much and you, you know, you love the the pulpit thumping gravitas of being able to warn everyone of doom. And I think there should be tears. I mean, Elisha anointed Hazard with tears and Jesus wept over Jerusalem and Paul said to the Philippians that I say again with tears that many live as the enemies of the Christ of the cross of Christ. Um, and also there should be prayer. One of the things I'm, I'm not going to get a chance to say in these two podcasts on Amos, but the sermon we're not looking at in chapter seven is really, I think, important because Amos, he sounds like quite a firebrand. You know, he's he's really courageous and he takes on the king and everything. But then you see him on his knees and he's saying, Lord, please relent. You know, they're so small, they're going to be wiped out. Lord, have mercy on them. And that makes me think of Amos quite differently because he sounds so fierce in the pulpit, but then you see him privately and he's crying out in prayer. And that I think that gives it a lot more credibility than just the angry young man who loves to tell everyone that the end of the world is nigh. I so agree. Like when we think of the cross, I think tears is a really good response actually because we can have tears at sadness at our sin at 
how much we grieve God, but we also have tears of joy when we see the mercy that he has shown us mm. in Jesus. And you see all of that at the cross. Andrew, I, I find it really hard to teach people about God's judgment. Just very recently running Christianity Explores, which was you know a tremendous privilege, but getting to those middle weeks, which are about sin and the cross, I just I just find it really difficult to sit there with non-believers and and I know that they are sinners and they are facing God's judgment but I just find it so hard to teach it I'd almost rather not do it what advice do you have for people like me Oh people like me as well I mean I think the commitment to expository preaching through whole chapters of the Bible is really protection for us I think because once you just get into the habit of I will just say what he says and that's my job and once the church knows that as well like if I just missed out a chapter of Amos because it was about God's judgment people at Grace Church Greenwich would notice that and they'd be like "What? why did you miss out this chapter so you, there's a kind of accountability that gets built into it then that I, I just have to say what's here and if I don't you'll ask me about it this just protects me because I I can't dodge the things I don't want to say because they're just here on the, on the page. So I think I don't like my chances of being faithful if I just got to choose what to say. But if I'm tied closely to what Amos wants to say, I end up saying all sorts of alarming things that I would never have had the boldness to say otherwise. And actually, we said at the beginning that judgment should be bringing comfort. You've highlighted that the last chapter is actually a really joyful one. Um, was that people's feedback when you preached these sermons? Did they see the comfort that there is in knowing God's judgment? I do think we feel a sense of justice, don't we? I mean, the, the world, even the non-Christian world, wants justice. And you think of the wars at the moment in the world and the some of the terrible atrocities that reach our TV screens. And you think, I really want revenge against this wicked person. And there's a comfort in knowing that God will bring it and their vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's comforting. And I think there's comfort even for the Christian who knows they have forgiveness in Jesus, to know that that wasn't cheap. It wasn't like God said, oh, I'll just let you off. But Jesus paid for it so that it wasn't at the expense of God's righteousness. I think there's a rightness to that. And obviously we dodge judgment when we're trying to hide from it. But there is a joy in it as well. Mm. Mm. We know the depths of our sin. We know Mm. it's costly. And if a cheap price was paid, maybe we would be questioning, are we really safe? Mm. You know, just um, very, very recently, someone my family know in a country abroad was, I mean, really wronged by the authorities. I mean, really, really wronged. And there's, there's no one they can turn to, as in it was the ones they would turn to who have wronged them. And I do just remember thinking, you know, they will have to stand before God. Um, I, I thought it was amazing that point you made that Eden have done evil. And yet God still cares about how Eden were treated. And he still cares about the evil that was done to them. It's such a surprise that, isn't it? I remember when I first noticed that in Amos, I was like, wow, aren't they the baddies? But God still protects them from being unjustly. I mean, they deserve punishment, but not unjust punishment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is amazing. There's nothing, nothing he doesn't see. 
Andrew, we always ask at the end of episodes, if you could do this talk again, what would you change? I think it's really important that preaching is to a group of people. So there's no sort of generic message on Amos 1 and 2 or 1 to 3. But this was to Grace Church Greenwich. And we have three different congregations, and I don't know which one the recording was from, but they would be a bit different. So our afternoon congregation would tend to have more established Christians. um, And we also got 11 to 14 year olds in it, a big group of them. Whereas the morning, lots of people are much, much newer to the Christian faith and more non-Christians checking in. So I think inevitably it needs to be different. It's one of the problems with internet preaching. I know this is ironic because you're listening to a podcast on the internet <laughs> now and there's nothing wrong with that, but it shouldn't be the supplement that it shouldn't be the substitute for hearing sermons from a preacher that knows you and is in your community of the church. I mean, that's how God's designed it. So yeah, I was speaking to our people and if I was speaking to different people or if I was speaking to our people in 10 years time and we're in a different situation, I hope that And the message is kind of the same because I'm getting it from Amos, but the way it lands will be a bit different or the way I might say it might be a bit different. Andrew, this has been so helpful. I've really enjoyed getting to know Amos a little bit better. We're really happy that you're coming back for the next episode as well to talk to us about Amos some more and a sermon you preached in chapter eight. We're really looking forward to speaking to you next time. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bible Matters podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not like and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts? The Bible Matters Project is funded entirely by the generous gifts of our listeners. And if you yourself would like to become a financial partner with us, you can find more details on how to give in the show notes. The Bible Matters Podcast is an initiative of St. Helens Bishopsgate and is created by myself, Leo Elborn, along with Tiff Stromsey. Music for this episode was written and produced by me, Leo Elborn, and Josh Stidwell. You can listen to more of Josh's work at Stids with a one, that's S-T-1-D-S. Thanks again for joining, and we hope to see you again soon.